0: Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of the Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Uh, I want to start off just by reading our passage of scripture this morning. That's in John chapter 12. So I'll give you just a second to turn there, John chapter 12. It'll also be up on the screens. Uh, And I'd like to invite uh, those of you who are able to stand for the reading of God's Word. Uh, After the reading, I'll say, this is the Word of God for the people of God, and then I invite you to respond with thanks be to God. So go ahead. That's all right. You can stand. Now is the time. (laughs) All right. uh, I'll be reading out of John chapter 12, the first 11 verses. It says this. Six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. And then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. Uh, she poured it out on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, was, uh, who was later to betray him, objected. And he said, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Now, he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as keeper of the money bag, he used to to help himself to what was put into it. Uh, Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It is intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. For you will always have the poor among you, uh, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews... Uh, found out that Jesus was there, and they came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And so the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. This is the word of God for the people of God. All right, you may be seated. On a hot uh, summer evening this past July, a few friends and I headed to Denver for a concert. Uh, I love music, I love to discover new music, I love to return to old favorites. Uh, But if you know me, you'll know that one of the bands that I haven't been able to shut up about over the past few years is the band called Loud Harp. Uh, Loud Harp was playing a a concert in Denver and so I gathered some willing friends to go with me. Uh, The venue for the concert was uh, called The Bellwether on Colfax Avenue. Uh, The Bellwether is an interesting place. Uh, It's a combination coffee shop slash whiskey bar uh, slash men's clothing boutique slash barbershop. Or, if that was a little bit confusing, to state it more clearly, this is Hipster Central, uh, right in the middle of Denver. So upon arrival to the Bellwether, I wish that I had worn the tightest pair of jeans that I own and my fedora hat. But instead, I was wearing cargo shorts and sneakers and really feeling quite out of place. Uh, Well, we we showed up at the Bellwether at 7.55 for an 8 p.m. show. We looked around the place. There was no stage. Uh, There were no guitars set up in a corner with a few amps. Uh, There was no sign of a concert happening anywhere. Uh, But there were a few dozen people standing around looking really, really confused, just like we were. At about 8.05, the owner uh, makes an announcement that uh, he was going to begin taking tickets. And so uh, what happens is he opens this this portal to Narnia, uh, or the door to the basement. Uh, So he opens opens this door down to the basement. Uh, We get our hands stamped. Uh, We make our way down a creaky, steep set of stairs uh, to this basement that is almost totally dark. Uh, There... It has maybe three or four Edison bulbs. You know what Edison bulbs are? Edison bulbs are a lot like the bulbs that are above you now, where you can kind of see the the light filament burning. Uh, They have maybe three or four Edison bulbs that light up the entire place, And, and so it is almost completely dark. But in the corner is signs of hope for a concert. It's a small setup of amps, guitars, and other instruments, a drum set. Uh, there were no chairs, no seating of any kind, and so clearly this was going to be a standing only event. And, and so given my love for loud harp, uh, we make our way right to the front. And since there are no stairs and, and no stage and no chairs, uh, then we camp out literally about three feet uh, from the, the microphone of, the, of where the lead singer will be. And so uh, this, was, this was an intimate concert, <laughs> to say the least. I literally could have reached out and, and uh, adjusted his glasses if he needed it. Uh, we were just that close. So, so after we get there and they, they kind of let uh, all of the folks in, uh, the owner uh, comes back and, and goes to the front there. And he came, came up and, and welcomes everyone by saying uh, something a bit like this. He says, hey, everyone, uh, thanks for coming. Uh, And even though the bell weather is a coffee shop, slash whiskey bar, slash men's boutique, slash barbershop, what we really want to be is a refuge for the complicated. Uh, And I thought to myself, imagine the irony of of that statement right there. Um, He said, but today, today, like tonight, we're really, this is my hipster voice, by the way. Uh, Today, we're we're really glad to welcome Loud Harp. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but Loud Harp music is so beautiful, it makes me cry. And so anyone who wants to hang out with me, uh, you can find me in the back crying and taking shots. Um, and then he says, so anyway, I'm, I promise you I'm not making a bit of this up. He says, anyway, we are so effing glad that you're here. <laughs> uh, to which me and my friends were like, I think tonight is going to be awesome, you know? Like, <laughs> but I have to tell you, I have to tell you what followed uh, in the basement of the bellwether was absolutely the most beautiful, inspired, God-ordained times of worship that I have ever experienced. Uh, there were 76 hipsters and the four of us absolutely singing our lungs out to God. It was just this amazing time. Uh, but I have to tell you a couple other details about this night. Uh, even though it was just this amazing like evening of worship... Uh, the, I, I, don't, I don't know if I'll ever forget it. I don't know if I'll ever forget the, the setting, the, uh, the, the gathering space, the, the way in which the Holy Spirit showed up that night. Uh, but this was really despite the fact uh, that it was so hot in that basement that all 80 of us were absolutely drenched in sweat and the whole place just reeked of B.O., I mean, it was just like, it was so phenomenally hot that it was just one of those things where it was like, you, you had to just, the only way to get past the heat was to embrace it. You were just like, I have to let the heat in and just get over it because it is a sauna in here, and I am literally going to drench my clothes with sweat. Let's embrace it and allow the Holy Spirit in. And so the Holy Spirit showed up despite being really uncomfortable, and it was also despite of something else. Uh, It turns out that my favorite brand, Loud Harp, is really, really awful at song transitions. Uh, Their their records are just like this this beautiful move of, of ambient rock, one song to the next, just this seamless, beautiful thing. But when you play it live, they can't do it. It's just like, it's really funny. Here's these like really great professional musicians who cannot transition from one song to the next to save their lives. And so like after a song, like just this, we're singing along, it's this great, you know, it's, they're like all my favorites. And so just singing along and then it just would end and they'll say, and then they would just call out the awkwardness and they would say, all right, everyone, just like imagine this really smooth transition to the next song. And then they, they would turn to each other and they're like, um, do you want to play the song Emmanuel next? And then one guy would go, I think I know that one. And then they would play it. It was just like so weird and so awkward. And then immediately we would just be swept back up into this like movement of the Holy Spirit. It was, it was absolutely incredible. It was truly one of the most beautiful nights of worship in my life, sweating with the hipsters. Um, this is in sharp contrast to what has come to be known in the church as worship culture. Uh, worship culture is, is largely has a message uh, to share with the church, and that message largely is if you want people to worship, you have to make sure uh, that the room is comfortable. Uh, find that fine balance between not too hot but not too cold. Uh, just find that, that perfect balance of once you get a crowd gathered that everyone is going to be comfortable because the Holy Spirit can't show up if people are sweating. Uh, or if they have a sweater, right? So it's like if you need a sweater or if you're sweating, that is like grounds for the Holy Spirit. It just kills the Holy Spirit. That's what worship culture largely says. Now, now I'm, I'm cartooning this a little bit. You realize that. Uh, but it also, worship culture says you need slick transitions between songs and you need visuals to match the music and you need all of this stuff. And, and if you go to a, an arena show of, of a popular worship band, this is precisely what you will get. Uh, worship... Uh, you'll get these slick transitions, all the visuals, the room will be nice and comfortable, you'll have all of those things, all of those pieces put together. And and worship music actually has become its own genre that has revitalized and in many ways rescued the Christian music industry, right? Uh, Songs that are not uh, church appropriate like what we loved in the 90s with DC Talk just don't make it anymore. You have to be able to sing along and worship God. I promise there's a point in all of this. I don't want you to mishear me. I I don't think there's anything at all wrong with slick production, lights and and visuals or arena shows. But but rather, my experience in the basement of Bellwether uh, got me asking some really important questions. Uh, Really important questions like, what is worship? And in particular, what is worship that it can actually happen in the arena with, with high degrees of production But it can also happen in a barely lit, 120-degree basement. Like, what is the nature of worship that it can happen in both of those spaces? Uh, That's an important question. And the answer, I think, for us this morning and what I want us to consider for our time together is I think worship happens whenever and however We ascribe worth to God. That that worship at its core, uh, I submit to you that one way of of thinking about worship uh, as as a core belief or uh, or defining it is worship quite simply is ascribing worth to God. And of course, music is one of the most beautiful, most natural ways to do this. And we have a built-in opportunity week after week in our services to worship God through the gift of music. But of course, worship as ascribing worth to God can happen in any number of ways throughout our life and throughout our week. And so I I wanna return us then back to the story of of Mary in uh, in their house in Bethany. Mary pouring perfume on the feet of Jesus and then wiping it off with her hair. Uh, This story is told in such a way that it is meant to come across as a bit shocking. there are elements in it that are meant to shock not only those who were there and experienced this, but also those who are reading it as, as kind of like, whoa, what, what is going on? But, but I want to point out to you that the, the shocking part of the story is not so much that a disciple is anointing the feet of her teacher. In fact, that's actually rather common and would be expected for a disciple to wash the feet of, a te- of, of, a, of their teacher or of their rabbi. This is why in John chapter 13, the reversal of those roles is is so profound where it's not the disciple washing the feet of the rabbi, but the rabbi washing the feet of the disciples. And Grace is going to talk about that next week. So what's so shocking is not that she, not what she did, but what's shocking is that she used, is what she uses. She uses a, a pint or or. In the Greek, we have to, you know, the scholars who spend all day on this. The English is a pint, or it could also be considered about half of a liter. She pours about half of a liter of expensive perfume onto the feet of Jesus. And in doing so, ascribes incredible worth to Christ. Now, I want to put this in perspective. Uh, you and I, to this day, uh, buy perfume. Usually, just one or two ounce at a time. Um, this bottle of perfume is 1.7 ounces. And if if you go uh, to a perfume counter, uh, it's been a while since I've purchased cologne or perfume for Amy. Sorry about that. I should get on that. Our 15th anniversary is coming up, um, so it's been a while since I've purchased perfume. But for just a couple of ounces, you could expect for nice perfume to spend. Uh, surely. Uh, Thirty or 40 or 50 dollars or higher on, on something just as small as, as a couple of ounces. Uh, but what Mary does is she grabs something about the size of what you and I use to drink, filled with the finest perfume, and she dumps the entire thing on Jesus' feet. John, in in retelling the story to us, wants to mention that it was so much perfume, it smelled up the whole house. I almost said stunk up the whole house, but that's not the right word, right? The the smell wafted through the entire place because there was so much perfume that was poured out. Again, I, I want to mention that what's shocking about this story is not so much the act itself, but the extravagance of what she does in pouring out a half liter of expensive perfume upon the feet of Jesus. And in so doing, she ascribes incredible worth to Christ. I wonder how many times we are tempted to offer up God our carefully measured worship. Uh, worship that is willing to go so far, but, but not that far. Uh, worship that would say, God, you're worth uh, this much, but you're certainly not worth that much. Uh, I, I wonder just how much we're, we're tempted to really be carefully measured in our worship to God. But what Mary shows us in this story in John chapter 12 is the extravagant love of, and, and worship of Jesus Christ. And in so doing, again, she's ascribing incredible worth to Jesus. She is screaming with her actions, Jesus is worth all of this. (laughs) And I wonder, I wonder what it would look like in our day and in our time and in our culture for for people to look at our lives and, and, and offer the same indictment against us. That we would say with, that we are saying with our actions, Jesus is worth all of this that we are offering up to Him. Now, this of, this, of course, this level of extravagance, this act of worship makes people uncomfortable. There are a couple of particular reasons why. First of all, it makes Judas uncomfortable. It makes Judas uncomfortable because that money. This this, this act is, is money that is literally being poured out in an act of worship to God. And he says, oh, you know, surely a better use of this perfume would have been to sell it and then give the money to the poor. And so immediately this level of extravagant worship is called into question by those who are observing it. behind the attitude behind the question is is one of oh come on surely this is not necessary there there are certainly more measured ways that we could go about this there are smarter ways that we could go about this you can almost hear judas uh, as the as the bookkeeper saying you know this this kind of worship and, and using this kind of resource, is really is not practical, it's not utilitarian, it doesn't serve other people. There, there's really no practical purpose to this. And I wonder, in a utilitarian culture like our own, how many times we attach worship to, to an act, utilitarian action. Is this doing something good? Is this, or is this just pouring out praise to God? And I would submit to you today that there has to be room in our practice of faith for both, right? There has to be room for, yes, this is, this is worship that goes and it does something. And in the doing, we are worshiping, right? And this is like, like Hurricane Harvey and, and giving and people going and, and all the relief efforts and many multitude of other opportunities. These are all acts of worship that have a utilitarian, good, practical thing. And it could also be said, this is worship. But is there room and is there space in our practice of faith to be able to also just be able to step back and say, there is room for nothing but ascribing worth to God. It isn't doing any practical good, but it is forming and shaping our hearts. In fact, that's what I would say to you. The practical good of every act of worship that doesn't seem to be immediately utilitarian is in fact that it is forming and shaping our hearts. I don't have time to do this like I would like to in my life and busy schedule and just responsibilities with family and everything, but, but there are times that there are one of my favorite things to do when I'm facing a difficult time or just need space to breathe in my life is to go downstairs uh, to where the nicest speakers in the house are, turn on loud harp, <laughs> and just let the music soak over me. And I'm not doing anything other than allowing God to just speak into my life and form my heart. And I believe that's worship. There has to be room in our lives for both practical and then impractical worship. According to Judas, there's much far better things that could be done. This could have been sold and given to the poor, and so he calls this extravagance into question. And Jesus's response is actually really interesting because he has spent his entire ministry uh, teaching about and emphasizing the importance of caring for the poor, looking after those uh, in th- that society has pushed to the margins, or giving voice to the oppressed. And yet, then he says, now how in one breath he says, you know, the poor are always going to be with you, uh, but. I won't, and so this is okay. And, and on the surface, it seems to be that Jesus is actually contradicting himself or his entire ministry of saying, you know what, the poor will always be with you, but I won't, so this kind of extravagance is okay, but, but what, he's, what he's, of course, alluding to is his death, and I would submit to you this, that in a very subtle way, what Jesus is doing is he's recognizing that it is his death that will begin to put the world back to right? Right? The, the, the Judas comes in and says, no, we need to do some utilitarian good. There are people that need help, and so we need to sell that, give the money to the people who need help. And Jesus says, well, I won't always be here, so this is worth it. And the implication, the, the foundation of the underlying thing is that in what he's about to do as he marches to the cross, that is the thing that will put the whole world back to right now, of course, us living on, the, on this side of Jesus' death and resurrection, we have a, a responsibility and a privilege to kind of live in both of those realities and those tensions of be able to worship the God who has made all things new through his death and resurrection and then yet participate with the work that needs to be done, right? And so we live in sort of this constant push and pull of praise and worship to the God who has sealed the deal. All things are made new. Sin and death are defeated. And yet we look at our broken world and we say, man, there's work to do, right? And so we live on this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus. We live in this push and pull. But I want to submit to you that all of this then is learned in a setting where extravagant worship is called into question. Or surely there are better things to do with that resource. The second thing that makes this uh, so shocking and, and, and such a, so alarming to the people who certainly were there is that in letting down her hair to dry Jesus' feet, Mary was participating in some risky business. This was not letting your hair down was not something a self-respecting woman would do. And just to give you a modern-day equivalent, it might be something like this. It might be a businesswoman dressed in a pencil skirt, kneels down to anoint Jesus' feet with her perfume. But then realizing that she doesn't have anything with which to dry Jesus' feet, she proceeds to tear her skirt all the way around so that now instead of landing at or below the knee, it lands more in the upper thigh. And everyone is around is taken aback at what is going on. And as awkward as that may sound, the point I'm trying to make is that, is that Mary was willing to risk her reputation to worship God and ascribe him worth. Now, of course, I'm certainly not advocating that any of you start ripping parts of your clothes off in worship this morning. <laughs> but this story presents to us a good opportunity to take inventory of our lives and ask the important question, what are the ways in which I am ascribing worth to God? And then a good follow-up question is, am I willing to do those even when it brings some measure of risk or inconvenience to me? I want to talk about three areas in which we could just take an inventory this morning. The first is an easy one. It's the one that we think of most often when we think of worship, and that is our opportunities to worship through music. Uh, Oftentimes in, in our culture, particularly in church culture, worship is is really a synonym for music and, and, and those of us uh, those of us who are pastors and leaders are always trying to break us out of the understanding that that music is much or, or worship is much bigger than that. Uh, but that being said, music is something that speaks to our culture. It, it's a it's a universal language that just touches our, our heart and our soul at a level that few other things uh, few other things can do. You know, several hundred years ago it was a poem that moved people to tears. Uh, but now it's, it's music. And so we use music as this beautiful opportunity to worship God. It's such a gift because it moves us. It's natural for us to engage in ascribing worth to God through music. And so my encouragement to you in taking inventory of your life today is, is to come each Sunday morning as we gather to take advantage of the opportunity to worship God through music knowing that some songs you'll like more than others, knowing that some songs you'll be able to sing along with better than others, but not allowing any of those things to get in the way of the fact that this is a chance, an opportunity for you to ascribe worth to God through music. If nothing else, if you hate the tune, if you, hate, if, if, you, uh, if you don't like the volume, whatever it is, whatever it is that you may not like about the song, then just focus on the lyrics and allow them to connect to your heart and to your spirit. And I got to tell you uh, that as the, as the pastor of this church, not all the musical selections are according to my personal preference. That's very intentional. We sing songs that I don't like. I drum to songs that I can't wait until they're over. <laughs> Uh, and that's because this isn't just about a single personality sort of spewing out what I prefer for music, but, but rather it's this, it's this recognition that all of us have different musical tastes and at some point we hope to connect to all of those different or most of those different tastes as best as we can. And so let's come each Sunday morning ready to worship God, to come and declare through lyrics that God is good and that he has blessed you. And if that isn't where you're at today, then you come and you sing to aim the desire of your heart to his kingdom and to remind your heart that he is good and he is ever-present. That there could be something very healing about going through a time of, of pain and difficulty coming to church and singing a song of praise and worship. That can be a healing movement and a healing action of aiming and directing our hearts and reminding us that God is good. But guess what? Occasionally, we'll also sing songs of lament or confession that might hit you right where you're at. And the point is is that during our gathered times, we have great opportunity to come with a heart ready to ascribe worth to the God who is worthy, amen? The second area I want us to just take inventory of this morning real quickly is is that of our time. Uh, If someone were to look at your schedule and your habits would they see from those things that you hold, that that God holds high worth and value in your life? Uh, That question is challenging, isn't it? If someone were to look at your schedule and your habits, would they see that God holds high worth and value in your life? Uh, Another way of of saying that is if someone saw our habits, uh, do our habits ascribe worth to God or do they ascribe worth to self or uh, to our image or to fitting in? If someone knew our entire schedule, would our routines and our patterns, would they demonstrate that we are engaging with God in meaningful ways? I think that's a difficult question, but the thing about time that, that uh, makes it different from all the other resources is that we all have an equal amount of it. <laughs> None of us have more time than the other. We're all given the same amount of time. And I I just want to encourage us to take inventory. Does the way in which we spend our time, the patterns, the routines that we participate in, uh, do they ascribe worth to God? Because I think our time is a great resource, God-given resource, and we want to use it to offer up extravagant worship to the king who is worthy. The third area that I want to ask, basically the same questions, is in relation to our money and our resources. Because that that question could also just as easily be asked of our money as well. If someone were to see your account activity, would it be clear that God is a high priority in your life? Or would your love for God largely be absent uh, from the habits of how we spend, use, save our money? You know, these are difficult questions. And the truth is, is that to engage with them faithfully and seriously, will take time and lots of personal reflection, but it is well worth the work to do so. And so on this Labor Day weekend, uh, I just want to encourage us that it's, it's a good thing to, to occasionally just take inventory uh, and, and see that the core idea of worship in all of our life, in every area of our life, is ascribing worth to God. The last thing I want to do today, and the last thing that I hope that I've done today, is is to induce guilt. Uh, I I certainly don't want to do that. Rather, I want to just encourage us to engage with God, to take inventory of our lives in the same way that you would take inventory of your life at the turn of a new year or in the same way that an employer would have an annual review or evaluation. It's good to every now and then just check in. And if in checking in, you feel the Spirit of God telling you that there are some things that are out of whack, uh, I gotta tell you, I'm not not here uh, to tell you what to do. I can't tell you what to do. I'm not gonna tell you how you should be spending your time or what changes need to be made in your budget, but rather I simply want to encourage you as your pastor to listen to the Holy Spirit and respond in obedience, to ask these difficult questions, to take inventory of your life and then respond in obedience to him. And then real quickly, the final thing I want to mention about this story is that when Jesus says this, he says it was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. This is a rather cryptic statement. Uh, The way it's formulated in Greek is unclear, and so the the, the translations vary widely because we're just like, what exactly is Jesus saying here? Because on the one hand, it seems that Jesus is saying that Mary should not have done this. She should have waited until after his death and then anointed his, his body with the perfume. But on the other hand, with Jesus' statement, it, it appears that Mary, whether she knew it or not, was unknowingly preparing Jesus' body for burial. Because after all, the events of Jesus' death would take place so quickly that there really wouldn't be time for that later. There wouldn't be time for this preparing. And so however we take it, this this story is is littered with foreshadowing of Jesus' death. Just over and over and over again, what Jesus wants us to see in this story is that this act of worship is intimately tied to this, this, this foreshadowing of his death. And so I simply want to say what I've already alluded to this morning, and that is that those of us who live on the other side of Jesus' death and resurrection know that it was this act more than others. Jesus' death and following resurrection, it was, it was that act more than any other that makes Jesus worthy of our worship. This is why we wear crosses around our necks and why we put them in the center of our sanctuaries. Uh, the reason that I drum behind a cross is because we want the, drum, the, the cross to be central to everything that we do and everything that we are. In fact, it would make all of you feel really awkward, but, but more appropriate theologically would be to bring the cross and put it right about, right about here in the middle of the room. And so that central to our worship gatherings is not any particular personality up front, the person singing or playing or speaking, but central to our worship gatherings would be Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. The center of our worship and the very thing that makes this God worthy is in fact what we remember as we look and as we gaze upon the cross. We remember then the God who is love saw fit to enter into our brokenness, and then through his own death and resurrection has led us to new life. Amen? What that means then is that every time we come to the Lord's table to remember his death and his resurrection, we are in fact proclaiming to the world there is another way And this way is not paved with hate and violence, but rather this this way is paved with love, forgiveness, and immeasurable grace. And so today, as we gather around the Lord's table, may we see it as an act of worship, ascribing worth to God, but also declaring That there is a way in which we can walk. There is new life made available to us that is defined not by our vengeance, not by our lines that we draw between one another, but a way that is paved with love and defined by grace. And so let us come to the table today with glad hearts, hearts full of thanksgiving and worship, recognizing that God. Is in fact worthy of all of our praise and all of our worship. Amen? Amen. Let's say a word of prayer and then I'll give us some instructions for gathering around the table. Heavenly Father, today we are so thankful for your love and for your grace, for your death and for your resurrection. And God, today we want to respond. With worship. Uh, we want to see, God, what you are worth and then offer up all, the best that we know how, signs and actions that ascribe that worth to you. And so, God, in this endeavor, would you help us? And as we come to the Lord's table today, God, would you speak to us and move in our lives and in our hearts? God, we give you thanks. We give you praise today. Be with us in these moments, we pray.